Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, be turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. And while you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our uh, Christ Fellowship Children's Ministry. So you can just make your way uh, back to the room in the, uh, the back corner. Uh, we would love for you to join in on that this morning. Again, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 11, as we continue to make our way through uh, this letter to the Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 3, 1 through 11. Uh, allow me to read our passage for us, and then we'll take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, And as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to gather this morning and consider Jesus. To look at him, to gaze at him, to meditate on the glories of Jesus Christ. And so I pray even as we seek to understand what it is you are instructing us this morning, that we would be doing the very thing this passage is calling us to do, that we would, in fact, be looking intently with intentionality at Jesus. And Father, I pray that as we gaze at Christ, as we see the glory of who Christ is, that it would indeed change us and transform us more and more into his likeness. Father, we, we fully know that we become like what we look at. And so, Father, I pray that you would make us like Jesus as we see him in your word this morning. And so, Father, I ask for your help as we seek to understand your word. I ask for your help as I seek to proclaim your truth. I pray that you would guide us into all truth, that you would protect us from being led astray, that you would protect my mind and my mouth this morning, that I would say only what is true of you and true of your word. And I pray that you would use your word uh, for the good of your people and for the glory of your name this morning. 
And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know that uh, many of us in this room come from uh, different kinds of church backgrounds, or maybe even some of you come from no church background at all. And I just I want to acknowledge that. But yet at the same time, I think regardless of what misunderstanding that kind of runs across and through denominational lines, and I just want to talk about it here at the here at the top of the sermon, here at the beginning, because I want to be sure we don't fall victim to it. And also the reality is, I think even if you didn't come from a church background, even what I talk about, what I'm going to mention is going to sound familiar to you. And that is this, that there, there's a view of becoming a Christian and trusting in Christ and, and then how we are assured of that throughout our lives. There, there's a, a view that, that's called decisionism. Now, you may have never heard that term before, you, but it's almost certain that you've experienced it or that you are familiar with what that term is referring to. So let me define what I mean by decisionism. Decisionism teaches that because in the past they made a decision to trust in Christ. Now, I want to be really careful here because what I just said can be misunderstood. So I want to make at least two really clear statements so I'm not, mis Lord willing, I'm not misunderstood, and then talk about a little bit more about what I'm saying. So let me make these two really clear, brief statements. To be a Christian, you must decide to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You must trust in Jesus Christ if you're going to be a Christian. If you're going to belong to Christ for eternity, you must place your faith in the life, the death, and the glorious resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So statement number one, I want to be crystal clear about that. I'm not, I'm not saying anything contrary to that. The second really clear statement I want to make is that if you place your faith in Christ— if you have indeed trusted in Jesus Christ, he has promised that he will keep you to the very end. He will keep you to the last day. You will persevere, right? The, you, you, will, you will make it with your faith intact. Christ will be faithful to you. He who called you is faithful and he will do it, God's word tells us. So I want to be really clear about the, the perseverance of the saints. All who trust in Christ will sustain their faith and will be rescued on the last day and will be with Jesus for all eternity. Now, with those statements clearly in place so that I don't risk being misunderstood, let me continue to talk about what decisionism teaches. You see, decisionism, decisionism in our culture says that someone can know with absolute certainty that they are saved and will be in heaven simply because they made what they thought to be a decision to follow Christ in their past. And what I want to say to you is that that perspective, that teaching, if we really think about it, renders almost Half of the New Testament meaningless. 
You, you cannot understand what Paul is saying to us in the book of Hebrews and in this passage in particular if that's the teaching that we cling to. This passage will not make any sense if decisionism is true. Now, now why do I say that? Well, as we read, I hope what you felt was this weightiness that the author of Hebrews felt as he was writing this. The author of Hebrews wrote the book of Hebrews because he was concerned, because he was worried that the people to whom he was writing this letter might fall away, that they might turn to someone else as their hope. And so he is exalting Christ and helping them look to Christ, wanting them to consider Christ, to pay attention to Christ, to keep their eyes on Jesus because he didn't want their eyes to wander and to look to somewhere else and find their hope in someone else. And so there are these kinds of warnings, these commands, consider Jesus, look to Jesus. And then verse six, you, you, you are his house if, right, if indeed you hold fast your confidence and your boasting in your hope. You see, he's going to great lengths to prove the glories of Jesus Christ and all that Christ has accomplished because he wants to be sure they keep their eyes on Jesus. In other words, Paul doesn't write, or sorry, the author of Hebrews doesn't write about the glories of Christ and give warnings about what could happen if you take your eyes off of Jesus and then conclude but really, you don't need to worry about it as long as 25 years ago you walked the aisle and made the decision to follow Jesus. Right? If that's, if that's what we're clinging to, we can ignore everything the author of Hebrews says. We can just ignore it. Right? So far too often, that's the false comfort that decisionism leads people to have that you find your assurance in a singular decision that you made in the past. But you see, that's not where the Bible tells us to find our hope and our confidence and our assurance. Instead, the New Testament, and this passage in particular, speaks to an ongoing battle that rages in our souls to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And it's a battle that rages every day. And Satan is doing battle against us, right? He is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He wants to get your eyes off of Jesus. And it is a daily battle for you and I to keep our eyes fixed on things above, fixed on Jesus Christ. And does Jesus Christ empower us for that battle? Yes, absolutely. Does he keep us and sustain us in the midst of that battle? Yes, absolutely. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. He has sent his spirit to dwell in us, to keep us faithful to Jesus. But that does not mean that we sit back and do nothing. No, it means that we make use of every means of grace possible. Prayer, the word, the gathering with God's people to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. It's why we need the church. It's why we need each other. Listen, this is at the very core of what we want the mission statement of Christ Fellowship to be. Here's our mission statement. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, the teaching of God's word, cultivation of discipleship relationships, and love for one another that we may present all mature in Christ. 
We want to be doing all of these things to be sure all of us, me included, make it to the end. We want to be trusting in Christ in our last day, that we may present all mature in Christ. That's what drives us. We want to be sure that we're being used of God every day to help you, to help me keep our eyes, our minds, and our hearts fixed on Jesus Christ so that we will hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And that's what the author of Hebrews wants for you. And that's what we want for you as God's people. See, the New Testament teaches us, as we're going to see in this passage here in just a moment, that our assurance that we, are, that we belong to Jesus must come from evaluating our lives today. Are we trusting in Christ today? Is there fruit in our life today? Because the heart is deceitful. And so how do we remain faithful, right? That's ultimately the question that the author of Hebrews is asking in the book as a whole and in this passage in particular. How do we remain faithful? And he gives us two overarching answers to that question that we're going to look at in this passage in verses 1 through 11. Answer number one, we must consider Jesus. We must consider Jesus. And number two, we must hold fast our confidence in Christ. We must hold fast our confidence in Christ. Now, there's a lot underneath those two headings, but let's just look at those two headings one at a time, the two ways that we need to seek to remain faithful. Number one, we must consider Jesus. So let's look there at verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now you can see that the author is building on an argument. A few weeks ago, we were in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, and we saw how uh, uh, the author of Hebrews showed us how Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, how he freed us from enslavement by freeing us from fear of death. And then also he, he showed us how Christ is able to help those who are being tempted because he himself has been tempted as we are. In other words, we focus on what Christ has accomplished for us through the cross and how we can daily come to him, to Jesus Christ, to give us strength in this battle that's raging within us. And so based on that truth, the, the author of Hebrews then concludes, therefore, holy brothers, because Christ has done this, because we can come to Christ when we're tempted, because he can sympathize with us when we are tempted, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, because all of that is true, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now, I love this word, consider the word in the original language is, is what's called an intensive compound word. It is an, an, an intense word. And it, it can be translated something like to apply one's mind to or to give thoughtful attention to or to look intently at. In fact, it's used, the same word is used another place in the New Testament where it's translated in the ESV to look intently at something. We are to look intently at Jesus. We are to apply our mind to seeing Jesus. We are to give thoughtful 
attention to Jesus. Now I remind you at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, do you remember what the author of Hebrews said? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Talking about what Jesus has taught us, we must pay, we must pay close attention to what we've heard. So that's really important, pay close attention to that. But now he's saying, don't just pay close attention. Consider him, look to him. Now think about this for a few moments. What, what are some things in your life that you would say you consider carefully, that you give careful attention to? Well, there's a lot of things perhaps you could list. Buying a house would probably be one example, right? If you think about all that you have to consider and look intently at when you buy a house, right? You, you, when you first start looking, you evaluate kind of where you want to live and you study the area. Is that going to be a good spot? Does the commute time make sense in this spot? Can I afford to live in this area? And then you narrow it down to, well, what neighborhood is going to work for me or or for my family, you have all those decisions to make. And then, and then you start looking at multiple homes on the market and visiting them in person, evaluating uh, them. And then you have to evaluate the condition of the home to evaluate the asking price. Is it, is it worth it? Are they asking too much? You have to compare it to other places and homes and make a decision about what, what offer you should make. And then, and then once you do that, you've well, before that and during that, you're deciding what kind of mortgage should you get? What terms should you get? What can you afford? And there's all these decisions that have to be made, how much of a down payment to make. And then once you make an offer and it's accepted, then you pay somebody to survey the land, to check the boundaries of the land, to be sure it's, you know exactly what you're buying. You pay a lawyer to do a title search to be sure there's no lawsuits against the property or, or no claims against the property. You pay an appraiser to come in to evaluate the property, be sure it's worth what you're paying for it. You pay an inspector to come in, right, to look at the house and be sure it's in good condition before you make. So this, this takes, right, um, at least a month, often today more than a month, right? That's, that's carefully considering something. Do we do that with Jesus? Or do we spend time patiently reading the New Testament, looking at him, meditating on him, who he is, what he's accomplished, the glories of who Christ is. Right? That's what the author of Hebrews is calling us to do, to consider Jesus, to look intently at him. And in fact, that's what he's going to do for us in this very passage. He's going to take time with us to look carefully at Jesus, but I pray that our gazing at Christ doesn't stop when we finish here this morning, but that it continues on in your life in the days and in the weeks and in the months and years to come. God's calling for this to be the pattern and the habit of our lives to be continually considering Jesus, continually looking to him, thinking on him, meditating on the glories of Jesus Christ. So what is it about Christ that we are to consider? So here's where the author of Hebrews is going to go into detail about Jesus in verses 1 through 6. What is it about Christ that we are to consider? Well, look at the rest of verse 1. He says, Consider Jesus, the apostle 
and high priest of our confession. So, so what is the author getting at here? What does he mean when he says that Jesus is the apostle and high priest? Because we don't normally think of Jesus as an apostle, right? He had apostles, but Jesus isn't an apostle. So what does the author mean by calling Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession? Well, an apostle is simply someone who is sent as a representative, right? That's, that's who the apostles were for Jesus. That's who those 12 were. They were men that Jesus selected to represent him, to, that he would then send those apostles out to teach what he taught, to represent him to the world. And so we have uh, the writings of some of the apostles in our, in our Bibles as the, the word of God representing Jesus, representing God. And that's what an apostle does. That's the definition of an apostle, and so Jesus is our apostle because God the Father sent Jesus to represent God on earth. He was sent to speak the words of God to us. He was a representative of God among us. He is our apostle. He brought God to us. So that's what it means by he's an apostle. So, so on that side, Jesus brought God to us. But then what does a high priest do? What, what is the role of a priest? Well, a priest is to represent man before God. Right? That's what a priest in the Old Testament would do. He would, he would sacrifice the animal on behalf of the people. He would pray on behalf of the people. He would uh, do the scapegoat and send it out, sending away symbolically the sins of God's people. He would represent God before, uh, on behalf of the people. Do you see the beauty in this? That Jesus is both. He brings God to his people and then he represents his people before God. And look, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews told us at the beginning of chapter 1. Right? Chapter 1 verse 3, talking about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Right? That's the apostle. He's the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He, he has brought the nature of God, the reality of God. The, he has brought God to us so that we can see God, right? That's, that's the role of apostle, chapter 1, verse 3. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And, if he, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now listen to this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the high priest. He has made purification for sin. He has stood in our place on the cross. He has represented us before God. And he just didn't offer another sacrifice. He offered himself. He stood in our place as our high priest and laid down his life on the cross, taking the wrath that we deserved on himself so that we could, through him, be in God's presence for all eternity, forgiven of sin, not facing the wrath and condemnation that we deserve. He is our apostle. He is our high priest. He brought God to us and he brings us to God, right? That is a glorious reality that we ought to consider on a daily basis. That it is through Christ that we know God and it is through Christ that we get to God. It is because of what he has done for us that we can have eternity full of joy and satisfaction in Christ in the presence of God. So we are to consider him 
because he is our apostle and high priest. He is our mediator. But we also must consider him, the author of Hebrews says, there at the end of verse 2, because, just as, uh, because he was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. We consider Jesus because he was faithful. He was faithful to him who appointed him. Of course, he who appointed him was God the Father. He gave Jesus a task. The task that Christ was sent to accomplish was to come and to save God's people and to keep them and to, to faithfully bring them into eternity to, to be adopted as God's children. That was the task that was given to him, and he was faithful to do it. And so we should consider Christ who was faithful to him who appointed him, who accomplished the mission that he was sent to accomplish. He is the supreme example of faithfulness. And in fact, the author of Hebrews compares him to Moses. Right? Do you see that in verse 2? He was, he was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. Now, why compare Jesus to Moses? Well, let's do a little work here, right? So when we looked at chapter 1, when the author of Hebrews was comparing Jesus to angels, he was showing us that Jesus is superior to angels. We, we had to do a little work, right, to remind ourselves of just how glorious and majestic and powerful angels really are because often we have this, this vague concept of what angels are like, right? We have these precious moment figures and these chubby things with wings and these, these like cute representations of angels. And we were reminded, right, that biblical angels are powerful, majestic, awesome creatures, but yet Jesus is more glorious than them. In fact, he created them and holds them together by the word of his power. And so let's do a little work about Moses to, to remind ourselves of exactly why the author of Hebrews would seek to compare Jesus to Moses. Why is this comparison significant? Well, this statement about Moses, that he is faithful in all God's house, comes directly from the Old Testament. It's what God himself said about Moses in Numbers chapter 12. In Numbers chapter 12, uh, Aaron and Miriam are upset with Moses. And so I just want to, I would want to read this for you. Numbers chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? In other words, there's some kind of jealousy toward Moses. Like, what's so special about Moses, right? God speaks to other people. Is it, who cares? Moses, us, Aaron, Miriam, it's, right? So that's, that's kind of their attitude right here. And the Lord heard it. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. It's like, right, getting, you got to think how Moses and uh, how Aaron and Miriam felt in that situation, right? When you're a kid and your, your parents say, we need to have a meeting, right? Come on, you, come, let's talk, right? You, they, they had to be sweating a little bit here, right? So, so God calls them out. He calls them to the tent of meeting. 
and the three of them came out. So Numbers chapter 12, verse 5. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So the point here is Moses was not just one of many. Moses had a unique role in the history of God's people. He was not a prophet like other prophets. He was unique. Other prophets, God says, I speak to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. I speak to them in different ways. Not, not so with Moses. I speak face to face with Moses, mouth to mouth. I speak directly to him. See, Moses held a significant and unique place among God's people that no other man held. And so when it says that Jesus is faithful, like Moses, it's significant. Furthermore, in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses knows that the end of his life is coming. He was told by God that he would not enter the promised land. The people are there. They're on the, the border, essentially, of the promised land. Deuteronomy is the Deutero, second giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. And he's there. They're on the border of the promised land. He knows he's not going to be able to go in. The end of his life is drawing nigh. And in Deuteronomy 18, this is what Moses says to God's people. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up, them, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of you. And so prophets came and prophets went. Prophets came and prophets went. But never did one come who was like Moses, who God spoke directly to this promised prophet never came until Jesus came. And so when the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is 
faithful, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. He's saying to us, Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. He's the one who was promised. He was the one that Moses spoke of. He was the one that Moses said is going to speak his, my words to you. And it's to him you should listen. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Listen to him. It's exactly what the author of Hebrews said to us, right? Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Listen to him. He's the one we've been waiting for. But of course, the author also wants to say to us, the author of Hebrews wants to say to us, he's the one we've been waiting for. He's like Moses in one sense, but he's very much not like him in another sense. And he wants to make that crystal clear. So as we, as we consider Jesus, we need to consider that he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. We need to consider that he's faithful in all God's house, just as Moses was. But we also need to consider that he is much more glorious than Moses ever was. He is much more glorious. And the, the, the distinction between Moses and Jesus is outlined right there for us in verse 3 and 4. Do you see this? Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now just pause right there. In the Hebrew ear, in the Jewish ear, that would have made them right take a step back. Well, hang on. What? What? More glorious than Moses? Right? That was a big deal. Jesus is more glorious than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying, if you think Moses was glorious, what do you think about the man who, the, the God who created Moses? Right? That's the distinction. Just like the distinction that the author of Hebrews wanted to make between Jesus and the angels. He's making the same one here between Jesus and Moses. Right? Jesus is more glorious than Moses because Jesus made Moses. He created Moses. He held Moses together by the word of his power. He has more glory than Moses because he made Moses. But not only that, he is worthy of more glory because of what he tells us in verse 5. Moses was faithful. He was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses did that really well, right? He was a faithful servant. He testified to what would be spoken of later. But Moses always knew that his role was to point to something or someone beyond himself. It was never about Moses it was about one who was to come, right? We just read that in Deuteronomy 18. There's going to be another one who's going to come. He's going to be more important than me. It's going to be about him. I'm speaking of someone who's going, who's going to come later. It's why after Jesus was resurrected and he's walking on the road to Emmaus with these two men. And it says, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning who? Himself. All the scriptures are about Jesus. Moses was always pointing to someone else, namely Jesus Christ. But when Jesus came, he didn't come as a servant in the house, right? Verse 6 says he came as a son. He's the son of the house. The house belongs to him. And when he came, he didn't speak about someone else yet to come. 
He spoke of himself. He is the subject of his teaching. Moses spoke of what is to come. Jesus spoke of what had arrived in himself. Again, as I just mentioned, we see that in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, in these last days, God is no longer speaking through prophets about someone who is to come. He's speaking through his son about the one who has already showed up, namely Jesus Christ. So he's worthy of more glory than Moses because the person Moses was talking about was Jesus. He's worthy of more glory because he made Moses. He holds Moses together and he's worthy of more glory than Moses because he was the very subject of which Moses was teaching us in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And therefore, therefore, we must consider Jesus. We must look closely at him. We must look intently at him because there is no one else to come. We're not waiting on somebody else to show up. Jesus is the one. He's the one that we were waiting for and he has come And he has shown us the Father. He is our apostle. He has represented us before the Father as our high priest. He has laid down his life in our place that we might be with him for all eternity, that we might belong to his house and be kept as his children forever. So we must consider Jesus if we're going to be part of his house and part of his people And if we want to be part of his house, the author of Hebrews says to us in verse 6 that we have to hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So that's the second way I want us to see this morning that we must remain faithful. If we're going to remain faithful, we must hold fast our confidence in Christ. Now look there with me at verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Right? Praise be to God. We are the house of Jesus. We belong to him. We are his children. He will keep us. But there is this concerning two-letter word in verse 6. We are his house if. Now, the word if should make us take a really long pause. And really think on whatever is about to be said, because I don't know about you, but I think I know I, and I'm I'm fairly confident all of you want to be a part of God's house, right? We all want to belong to Jesus. We all want to be in his house. So so when that word if shows up, we we need to pay attention, right? We need to listen to what's about to be said. Now notice what it does not say. It does not say we are his house if... We made a decision 15 years ago. It's not what it says. 
Now, we must become a part of God's house by deciding to place our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Yes, absolutely. But I'm asking you a different question here. How do we know that we're a part of God's house? How do we know we belong? How do we know we are members of this house? And the answer to that question is in verse 6. We are his house if, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. That's how we know we're a part of God's house is if right now, if right now, are we right now holding fast to our confidence in Jesus Christ? Are we holding fast to our boasting and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? Is that true of you? Is it true of you right now, this very moment? Are you holding fast to Jesus Christ? In other words, the only way to know that we belong to Christ or not is by the fruit of our lives right now. Has the faith that we claim to have placed in Jesus Christ a decade ago producing fruit in your life now? Right, that's the question. It's why the Bible says thing to, things to us like, work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Because our confidence doesn't come from a past decision that bears no present fruit. Does that past decision bear this kind of fruit in your life right now that you are having Holding fast to your confidence in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that you're never going to struggle with faith. I'm not saying that you're never going to have doubts, that you're never going to struggle, right? That's why we need each other. That's, that's, I want you to, that's, this is a safe place to struggle with doubt and talk and ask questions and evaluate these things. Let's do that together. I'm not saying that's never going to happen in your life. But I'm saying is the overall pattern, the overall picture of your life, one of holding fast to Jesus. Right, this isn't the only place in the Bible that says this, right? It's essentially what Jesus is saying to us in the well-known parable of the soils, right? The man sows seed, right? We see this in Matthew chapter 20, uh, 24. Oh, no, sorry, that's not in 24. I'm going to read another passage from, from Matthew 24. But the, the, the parable of the soils, he's, he's spreading seed, and some of it falls on the road, right? The beat-down, hardened road, and it says, Satan comes and immediately snatches, snatches that word away. Some of it falls beside the road in the, the rocky soil, and it immediately springs up, right? There seems to be evidence that this person has accepted the truth of this teaching, the truth of the gospel. And it springs up immediately, but because it grows no, what? Root. It withers away. It didn't hold fast to its confidence in Christ. And it shows that it never really had the gospel to begin with. The other seed is sown in the, the thorny soil or the, the weedy soil. And those thorns represent the cares of this world. And even though it grows for a time the thorns and cares of the concerns of this world choke it out. Proving that it wasn't genuine faith because it didn't hold fast to its confidence in Christ. But the soil, but the seed that was spread on the good soil, 
What does it do? It produces fruit. A decision in the past with no fruit in the present is not saving faith, friends. And that's why I say, if that's what you're clinging to this morning, this passage is nonsense. What we must evaluate our lives by, what we must evaluate that past decision by, is whether or not it transformed us. Have we been made a different person? Are we a new creation in Christ? And if you are a new creation in Christ, then verse 6 will be true of you. You will hold fast to your confidence in Christ. It's why Jesus says, now this is what was from Matthew 24. Jesus is talking about the last days, Matthew 24, 12 and 13. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Saving for is not saving faith. Saving faith is enduring faith. Now, I want to be clear, just as we come to a conclusion here, I want want to be clear that the if statement doesn't somehow mean that we can belong to Jesus or, or, or uh, achieve our belonging to Jesus by our own efforts, right? That's not what the if statement means. It doesn't mean that the way you earn the right to be in the house of God is by working really hard and, and proving that you're worthy of, right? That's not what verse 6 is saying. What verse 6 is saying is it's giving a description of those who are in God's house, right? This is the description. The description is that if you're in God's house, this is what your life will look like. Citizens of God's house have faith that holds fast their confidence in Christ. That's what the citizens of this home look like. And Jesus is the one who sustains that very faith within us. And the author says, look, you need to learn from the example of the Israelites. And so let's just briefly look at the example of their lives and what we need to learn from it as we conclude this morning. This passage in verses 7 through 11 is quoting Psalm 95. Psalm 95 is referencing an event that happened in Exodus 17. So Exodus 17 is not long at all after God's people were rescued from Egypt, right? Think about all that they witnessed in Egypt, right? The 10 plagues, they saw it with their own eyes. They witnessed God's sovereign, majestic power over nature and people to rescue them from Pharaoh, right? And they make it out of Egypt. The Egyptians just like hand them all their, here, just take all our silver and our gold with you, right? They give them everything they need and they, almost a million of them, right? They just walk out of Egypt, And there's a pillar of cloud to lead them by day and a pillar of fire. And they they come up to the Red Sea and God moves the the pillar of cloud behind them, the pillar of fire, and it protects them. And then Pharaoh, as you know, changes his mind and says, no, I don't want to let the people go. And he, he comes after them with his full army. And God leaves the pillar of fire like the Israelites witnessed this with their own eyes. A wall of fire keeping the army from coming to them while God is separating the waters of the Red Sea for them. 
And then they, they just they walk across dry land with water all around them. And they make it safely to the other side. Pharaoh's army comes barreling after them. And God brings the water together, crashing over Pharaoh's army and rescues them miraculously, overwhelmingly. And then they say, Moses, we're thirsty. We need some water. Why'd you even bother to rescue us if you're just going to let us thirst to death, right? God can do all that, but I doubt he's going to be able to provide some water for us. And so as you know, God instructs Moses to strike the rock, and he is so patient with his people, and he provides water for them. That's what's being referred to here the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test. But here's the problem. It didn't stop there. Their time in the wilderness was just doubt on top of doubt, on top of doubt, on top of disobedience, on top of rebellion. And they saw miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, right? That's what it, that's what it says in verse 9. They saw my works for 40 years. A pillar of cloud led them by day, a pillar of fire by night. God provided <clears throat> water for them out of a rock. He sent them piles of birds to have meat to eat. He provided manna for them every single day. Right? Just provided time and time again. They were in the wilderness for 40 years and their sandals didn't even wear out. Like It's miraculous, right? All that God provided. They saw his works. <clears throat> And yet they went astray in their hearts. And he says they really never knew his ways. And here's the warning. Here's the warning that the author of Hebrews wants to give us. You see, God's people, the Israelites, could easily be fooled into thinking because they were in the physical presence of God's people that they were safe. Right? They were in the physical presence of God's people. They were physically seeing God's miraculous works. But their heart was far from him. And even though they saw his works on display, it says they never really knew him. They never really knew his ways. And so here's, here's the weighty warning for us this morning. Attending church and being around God's people does not save you. Attending church is necessary. Like we need to do it. We need each other. But don't fall for the lie of Satan that leads people astray by saying, if I'm just around God's people, it's enough. You've you got to know him. You have to know his ways. You have to not go astray in your heart. You have to hold fast your confidence in Christ. It's a sobering reality, friends. And I say none of this to create fear or anxiety. I say it out of love and compassion so that none of us will be led astray. 
But this, this reality, this truth is why Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> in other words, it's the one who shows fruit in their life. It's the one who holds fast to their confidence in Christ. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? In other words, were we not around your mighty works? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Israel was around the miraculous works of God, but they never knew him. A, a portion of them never knew him. And that's why our mission here at Christ Fellowship is not just to proclaim the good news of the gospel, not just to speak the gospel and, and try to get as many converts as possible, though we certainly want that to happen. We certainly want people to place their faith in Jesus Christ. But we also want to be used of God day by day, week by week, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we will, in fact, endure to the very end. And look, this is just a preview into next week because I want the weight of this week to lead into next week. Which is why the author of Hebrews says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care of each other. Take care of one another. So let's make it our mission. Let's make it our goal to every week consider Jesus to look intently at him, to gaze at him, and to pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that by God's grace, we will hold fast our confidence to the very end. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the work of Jesus Christ in our place. And Father, it's so easy for our deceitful hearts to lead us astray. And so Father, I'm so thankful for this fellowship of believers that you have given us here at Christ Fellowship Leesville. I'm thankful that it's a group of people who take seriously the truth of your word, who will hold me accountable and who want to be held accountable so that we will not be like the soil among the, the, rocky, among the rocks or the, the, the thorny soil, but instead we will cultivate in obedience to you. Father, I pray that you would allow no one to be deceived by a past decision that's having no ongoing fruit in their life today. And I pray that you would create fruit within us, that you would work in us to sustain us and to keep us and to make us faithful, that you will, by your grace to us, keep our minds and our hearts fixed on Jesus, that you would set our eyes on things above where Christ is seated at your right hand, and that every week we would remind each other to keep looking to Jesus. And so, Father, we just ask for your sustaining grace among us, for our eternal good, and for the glory of your worthy name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.